The following presentation is brought to you by the Realm Network. Buzz Burbank, news and comment. Witnesses to be or not to be. Welcome to my weekly report for Thursday, January 30th, 2020. Thank you for listening to this independent news, which appreciates your support through the donate button at buzzburbank.com. A bombshell, the way we use that word today, is a revelation that has the potential to change our reality. There's been a succession of bombshells during this presidency, but especially since the start of the impeachment. But not all bombshells explode in the way we expect. Some have delayed reactions, and some seem to have had no effect at all. But it adds up. A steady bombardment has a cumulative effect, and some bombshells are bigger than others. There have been a string of major revelations since the House impeachment managers wrapped up their opening arguments in the trial of Donald John Trump, and they have the potential to change our reality. These are the bombshells, and they are at the center of today's report. Before labeling Trump a dictator and a dangerous one, House prosecutors used every minute of their allotted 24 hours of session time to repeat their case. As annoying as that redundancy was to Republicans and as tiring as it was to those who watched the whole presentation, it meant that any American could tune in for just an hour, any hour, and get the gist of the case against the president. Anticipating that Republicans would not allow them to call witnesses or bring new evidence, House Democrats called up video clips and documents on the TVs on the Senate floor and on the TVs in people's homes. They used videos from news broadcasts, including the Fox News Channel, and they used clips of testimony from the House impeachment inquiry. So, in a way, House Democrats got some of the witnesses they wanted, including Lev Parnas, even if it appeared they would not get eyewitnesses like John Bolton. They presented video testimony from Gordon Sondland, Kurt Volker, Fiona Hill, Tim Morrison, and Bill Taylor. Every one of these individuals appointed by Trump not liberal Democrats or deep state bureaucrats or never-Trump Republicans. Trump selected them himself. House managers also got testimony from FBI Director Chris Wray and even Trump's acting chief of staff Mick Mulvaney through video. For good measure, they also brought in by video Marie Ivanovich, Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Vindman, and George Kent and David Holmes from the State Department. There was a parade of witnesses on the screens of the Senate chambers and on the screens of phones and TVs across the country. Through Democrats' use of video as testimony, they were even able to call the star witness, the defendant, Donald John Trump. Described by Nancy Pelosi as a self-impeaching president, Trump unwittingly testified against himself this week as Democrats indicted him with his own words. The video of Trump saying, Russia, if you're listening, carried even more impact when followed by a video of Trump asking China to join Ukraine in investigating Joe Biden. There was another recording of Trump answering a question about whether he'd accept foreign dirt on an opponent in a future election. Oh, I think we'd want to hear it, Trump says on the video. And those clips were followed by the words of lead House impeachment manager Adam Schiff, quote, We hear again from the president's own words what his primary object is, and his primary object is helping his re-election campaign, help to cheat in his re-election campaign. Schiff continued, he was at it again, unrepentant, undeterred, if anything emboldened by escaping accountability from his invitation and willful use of Russian hacked materials in the last election. Among the documents introduced by the House prosecutors this week, the transcript Trump wants everyone to read, the one in which he asked for a favor, though, right after Ukraine's president asked him about getting military aid for its border fight with Russia. 
one of the countries that poses the greatest threat to U.S. national security. Democrats even pre-butted what the Trump defense lawyers would likely say about the Bidens. Trump lawyer Jay Sekulow was in the corridor during a break telling reporters they have opened the door, indicating he hadn't planned to bring up the Bidens, but now the Democrats have, as if it weren't destined to come up anyway. If we're going to call witnesses, said Sekulow, it's now clear we absolutely must call Hunter Biden, and we probably need to call Joe Biden. But the House impeachment team again employed video of Trump lawyer Alan Dershowitz to make their case for the removal of a president, and video also of Senator Lindsey Graham, who was an impeachment manager when Bill Clinton was on trial. When you start using your office and you're acting in a way that hurts people, you've committed a high crime, said Graham back then. Democrats tore into Trump's conspiracy theory that it was Ukraine, not Russia, that hacked into Democrats' emails to help Hillary win the election. This theory was brought to you by the Kremlin, said House Intelligence Committee Chairman Adam Schiff, who recounted how Trump had heard that directly from Vladimir Putin. They not only got him to deflect blame from their interference in our democracy, but they got him to withhold military aid, said Schiff. And Schiff played the video of Trump with Putin in Helsinki, in which he said he believes Putin over U.S. intelligence when it comes to interference in the 2016 election. That's one hell of a Russian intelligence coup, said Schiff, adding, they got the president of the United States to provide cover for their own interference in our election. And even while prospects seemed dim for actual witnesses to be called, House prosecutors turned to their star witness, the president. Trump is on freeze frame up on the screens. Roll video. I would love to have Mike Pompeo and Mick Mulvaney, and I would love to have Rick Perry and many other people testify, says Trump. Freeze frame. I ask you, I implore you, said Adam Schiff, give America a fair trial. She deserves it. But that was just Article 1 of the impeachment of Donald John Trump. That was just the abuse of power charge. The video of Trump saying, we're fighting all the subpoenas, pretty much said it all when it came to the charge of obstruction of Congress. If what we are talking about is not impeachable, argued Jerry Nadler, then nothing is impeachable. If you find him guilty, argued Adam Schiff, then you must find that he should be removed because right matters, because the truth matters. Otherwise, said Schiff, we are lost. After the Democrats had wrapped their case, Republicans seemed to be unmoved by any part of it, complaining they'd heard nothing new in a trial that will allow nothing new. The truth will come out, Schiff warned Republican senators. The question, said Schiff, is will it come out in time? When it comes to preserving this democratic republic, Schiff warned, our future is not assured. Time has not been kind to Trump in this impeachment, shining an even more favorable light on Pelosi's holding back the impeachment articles for nearly a month. Nearly every day, including Sundays now, We learned something new, and not once has it been something that exonerates this president. This past weekend, two of those revelations are what we call bombshells, the first of which began to fall even before House managers could start their last day of their case against Trump. Last Friday morning, the lawyer for Giuliani associate Lev Parnas released a video from Lev's phone that featured 90 minutes of a fundraising dinner with Trump and others. The revelations on the video give an adrenaline boost to the House impeachment team going into their final day of opening arguments. The video also gave a credibility boost to Lev Parnas as a potential witness in the trial should that floodgate get opened. Parnas had previously claimed he'd told Trump that Ambassador Ivanovich was not loyal to him and that Trump responded by ordering Ivanovich fired. 
This video from 2018 records Trump saying, get rid of her, get her out tomorrow, I don't care. His response also includes the mob-speak words, take her out. Parnas apologized to Ms. Yovanovitch through a TV interview saying he was wrong about her at that dinner. The conversations, though, established that despite Trump's denials, he did have a relationship with Lev Parnas and had not simply posed for pictures with a donor he didn't really know. And there was more in that video that makes it the bombshell it collectively is. The video reveals Trump asking about a Ukraine without military aid. How long would they last in a fight with Russia, asked Trump. Not very long, Parnas answers. Without us, he says, not very long. So Trump knew the power of holding hundreds of millions of dollars in military aid to Ukraine before he decided to withhold it to get an investigation into the man he believes might beat him this November. And he knew Marie Yovanovitch was in his way, which explains why he'd say, take her out, and later say, she's going to go through some things. Yovanovitch was removed from her post through the efforts of Trump's new personal lawyer, Rudy Giuliani, who later employed Lev Parnas and Igor Fruman to help him do it. Lev's video is now in the hands of federal prosecutors and House impeachment managers for what that may be worth. And perhaps the most explosive thing about that video, the word from Lev's lawyer that he may be releasing more tapes of Donald Trump. And that evening, Democrats were buoyed by a Washington Post-ABC News poll that showed two-thirds of adults in the U.S. wanted the trial to include witnesses, while barely over one in four did not. Despite the lift for Democrats from that poll and the Lev Parnas video, they were privately pessimistic by Saturday after a possible misstep by Chairman Schiff in his closing arguments Friday night. Schiff cited a CBS News report that Republican senators had been told that if they vote against Trump in this trial, quote, your head will be on a pike. Schiff had accused Republican senators of being afraid of Trump, and they resented that accusation, even though days later, Republican Congressman Mark Meadows would warn his Senate colleagues they'd face repercussions if they voted against Trump. But head on a pike? That's not true, said some senators willing to violate the order of silence in the Senate chambers. Later, Lisa Murkowski, a vote Democrats were counting on for witnesses, told reporters he was doing fine with moral courage until he got to head on a pike. Other Republicans had a similar response, including Maine's Susan Collins. Schiff had given them an excuse to be offended and to withdraw any hope of their voting for witnesses. The goal of at least four Republicans voting for witnesses faded. So Democrats were privately a little down on Saturday as the Trump defense opened with two hours of what its defense would be. But that was Saturday. The weekend wasn't over yet, and a bigger bombshell was on its way. The next bombshell was not the president's possible threat to Chairman Schiff early Sunday morning. Shifty Adam Schiff is a corrupt politician and probably a very sick man, tweeted Trump, putting corrupt politician in all caps. The tweet continued, He has not paid the price yet for what he has done to our country. Has not paid the price yet also sounded a little gangsterese. Later that morning, Schiff was on Meet the Press. Schiff said he believes the tweet was intended as a threat. I think he means Schiff hasn't yet paid the price with the voters, said White House Press Secretary Stephanie Grisham. She thinks. She also thinks Schiff has a, quote, mental issue, she says. But that was just Sunday morning. The day wasn't over. Team Trump 
had been working behind the scenes to keep John Bolton from testifying, just in case there would be witnesses. The former national security advisor, loved and respected by conservatives until this week, had said he'd be willing to talk under a Senate subpoena. Being a good conservative, he wouldn't testify for the House, where he's deeply unpopular, but he would be willing to talk to a Republican Senate with a subpoena. The Trump team's hope was that executive privilege would keep Bolton from testifying, or a restraining order, maybe, despite the First Amendment issues with that. If Bolton were to obey the subpoena, however, there had to be a plan B for the White House, move Bolton's testimony behind closed doors into a classified session. If Bolton were to talk, the less public, the better for the White House. The name of Bolton's book is The Room Where It Happened. It's about his time as national security advisor to this president. He hopes you'll buy it. It comes out in March. It's on presale now. But a draft of the manuscript leaked in Sunday's New York Times. In it, Bolton says he became worried about Trump's fondness for the world's autocratic leaders and the favors Trump was granting to the autocrats of Turkey and China. Where's my favorite dictator, asked Trump, as he waited to meet the president of Egypt last year. Trump's also praised the late Saddam Hussein for being good at killing terrorists. He said the world would be better off if Libya's late Muammar Gaddafi were in charge right now. Trump's declared himself a big fan of Turkey's Erdogan, Chinese President Xi, Russia's Vladimir Putin, and, at one time, North Korea's Kim Jong-un. Bolton was so worried about this, he went to Attorney General Bill Barr. He says Barr seemed worried about it, too. But Bolton also had a bombshell to deliver, writing that Trump told him in August that the aid to Ukraine was, in fact, tied to investigations into the Bidens. The book shows that Trump took this position despite objections from his senior national security officials. And Bolton revealed he'd shared with both Attorney General Bill Barr and Secretary of State Mike Pompeo his concerns about Rudy Giuliani's back-channel dealings with Ukraine. Boom. It was a bombshell big enough to have Trump tweeting about it after midnight on Sunday night. And the manuscript laid bare multiple lies Trump's lawyers had thrust upon a Republican-led Senate the day before. And the part of the manuscript that was leaked just happens to be the part about Ukraine. On Saturday, Deputy White House Counsel Michael Purpura told his limited TV audience, not a single witness testified that the president himself said there was any connection between investigations and security assistance, a presidential meeting, or anything else. The Bolton manuscript drops the next day and belies all of that. Boom. Bolton says the president told him while the money was being held that he wanted it to stay frozen until he got help with investigations into the Bidens. Boom. The tough job of being a defense attorney for this president had just gotten tougher. To most eyes, the Bolton book had just crushed the credibility of Trump's defense team and destroyed their argument that there was no quid pro quo. Bolton's book had also belied the Trump defense that Ukraine never knew the money was being held for an investigation. During the House impeachment inquiry, the Defense Department's Laura Cooper testified Ukraine had asked about that very thing on the very day of Trump's infamous phone call to Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky. And it revealed that Secretary Pompeo had known about the pressure on Marie Ivanovich and did nothing about it. Trump's lawyers would have to return to the Senate chambers on Monday to try to forge ahead with their defense case. And the Republican disinterest in witnesses and evidence began to turn to interest in John Bolton and perhaps others. Bolton's manuscript landed just as it was starting to appear there really would be no witnesses in this impeachment trial. It appeared the trial would end without whatever John Bolton knows. 
avoiding the word bombshell. Democrats called the revelations explosive and called on the Senate to call Bolton as a witness. John Bolton and his publisher say they had not shown the manuscript to anyone, except when they submitted it to the White House for a national security review on December 30th, a review that could stop the book by claiming it includes classified information. That bit of information raised even more questions. Is there someone in the White House's national security team who wanted to short-circuit the president's defense? Is that why the manuscript leaked the day after Trump's lawyer said there were no witnesses who'd said they'd heard the president connect the aid to investigations? Or was it done by someone looking to gin up book sales since the book just happened to go up for pre-sale on Amazon that same day? And why didn't the White House let Mitch McConnell know it had received this copy of Bolton's damning book so McConnell could be ready to counter it? At least some of those questions are for another day. In the here and now, the big bombshells had already dropped. Last week, we heard that 7 in 10 Americans want a trial with witnesses. Those numbers are up. A new Reuters poll shows that 7 in 10 Republicans want witnesses now, along with 84% of Democrats. An informal poll of Senate Republicans showed that the needle had not moved for them on witnesses, but by Monday morning, more Republican senators were calling for them. Mitt Romney and Lisa Murkowski and Susan Collins said they still want witnesses and are talking to other senators about joining their call. Romney called it increasingly likely that the numbers for witnesses would grow in the wake of Bolton's book. Murkowski said the book strengthened the case for witnesses. It appeared it would still take at least four Republican votes to make witnesses happen. Independent Senator Angus King of Maine said he wouldn't be surprised if there were five or ten. Because a growing number of Republican senators are under pressure to allow witnesses. Pressure from the judgment of history and, in some cases, pressure from their own constituents. Preventing testimony from Bolton or any other witness at this point makes it appear the senators are part of a cover-up. And the longer they take to decide on witnesses, the more it appears as a cover-up and the more it angers Donald Trump. A Fox News poll out Sunday showed that 50% of this country's registered voters want the Senate to convict and remove this president. That's a six-point margin over the 44% who oppose conviction and removal. 50% is not a majority. It's just more than the group that disagrees. That kind of lead is called the plurality. As big as that six-point lead would be in an election, it pales in comparison to the numbers from independent voters in this Fox News poll. And that's the big news from the Fox poll. It finds that among registered independent voters, there is a 20-point lead in favor of conviction and removal. It said that a majority of independents, 53%, want Trump yanked out of office now and that only 34% of independents, barely one in three of them, disagree. And that poll was taken just before Democrats began unfolding their dramatic case last week. From the bombshells to the shifting public opinion, if we have learned anything from this past week, it is, this isn't over. Trump's lawyers began their presentation as it turned out on a Saturday, or as Trump called it, Death Valley for TV. So they kept that opening to just two hours, focusing on what they argue is a democratic effort to overturn the will of the people by overturning the results of the 2016 election in an attempt to win the 2020. As evidence, the president did nothing wrong. They waved around the transcript of that July 25th call. They pointed to the public statements of Ukrainian officials who said they never felt pressure from that call. 
even though it's well-established, Ukraine still had plenty to lose if it crossed this American president. They pointed out that Ukraine did eventually get its money because they claimed Ukraine has no better friend than President Trump. And they made the two claims that proved false, that there were no witnesses who heard the president connect Ukraine aid to investigations. John Bolton's manuscript shot that claim down the very next day. And the Pentagon's Laura Cooper had already shot down the claim that Ukraine never knew the money was being held in exchange for the investigations. There was a string of other falsehoods in that first day of the defense presentation, as short as it was. That Ukraine interfered in 2016 as well as Russia, they didn't, according to FBI Director Chris Wray. They argued that the White House rejected legal congressional subpoenas because the House never took a formal vote to conduct an impeachment inquiry, but it did once the inquiry began to bear fruit. Trump's lawyers also falsely claimed the president had not been given the chance through his lawyers to defend himself in the House impeachment inquiry. If you recall, White House counsel Pat Cibolone sent the House a letter saying no one in the administration would cooperate with a partisan impeachment effort. Trump's lawyers claimed on Saturday there was no quid pro quo, even though we have acting chief of staff Mick Mulvaney on video telling us there was. They claimed the Mueller report determined there was no collusion, even though the report never addressed that question, since it is, as Mueller testified, not a legal term. They claimed that Trump has been framed by obsessed Democrats when Trump, quote, did absolutely nothing wrong. Their plan was to keep the case simple and short. Trump's lawyers, some of their fees paid by the Republican National Committee, promised not to drone on in the way they felt Democrats had. But then the Lev Parnas video dropped, and the Bolton manuscript dropped, and they both generated shockwaves. We wouldn't have even known about Bolton's book. We wouldn't have even known there's such a person as John Bolton if we watched just the first eight hours of the Trump defense on Monday. Trump's lawyers seemed to pretend that neither Bolton nor his book even existed until around 9 p.m. when Alan Dershowitz told senators nothing in the Bolton revelations, even if true, would rise to the level of abuse of power or an impeachable offense. Dershowitz had finally acknowledged the elephant in the room, the John Bolton that was on everyone's minds. And they weren't just thinking about Bolton and his book on Monday and what it meant for calling witnesses and what it meant for the president's defense. Republican senators sat there fuming, angry that the White House had known about the contents of Bolton's book for a month and said nothing about it and allowed Trump's Senate supporters to get blindsided. Trump, meanwhile, was tweeting about Bolton and unwittingly waiving any executive privilege claim about Bolton by bringing that so-called privileged conversation into the public arena. I never told John Bolton that the aid to Ukraine was tied to investigations into Democrats, including the Bidens, tweeted Trump, adding, in fact, he never complained about this at the time of his very public termination. One of the Republican strategies for keeping Bolton from testifying flew out the window with that tweet. It was now even more likely Republicans would allow testimony from the man who'd called the Ukraine pressure campaign a drug deal. But on Monday, the day after Bolton's manuscript dropped, Trump's defense team was mostly ignoring the elephant in the room. Trump's lawyers barely mentioned Rudy Giuliani, the personal lawyer who tried to do Trump's bidding in Ukraine, the man Bolton had called a hand grenade who's going to blow everybody up. One Trump lawyer, Jane Raskin, played down Giuliani's role in the Ukraine scandal, calling him that shiny object meant to distract you. 
Instead, they spent the day condemning Joe and Hunter Biden and even Barack Obama. Trump lawyer Robert Ray said it was Obama who should have been removed from office, which is not exactly a defense of Trump. Trump lawyer Jay Sekulow played video of Nancy Pelosi handing out the pens she used to sign the articles of impeachment, hoping to win back the Republicans whose attention had turned to a witness named John Bolton. That morning, before Trump's lawyers would begin their second day of trying to defend the president, Republicans called off their regularly scheduled news conference because, Bolton, their plan to rush without witnesses to the acquittal of Trump was falling apart. Maybe we could just get the manuscript and not question John Bolton, McConnell proposed in not so many words. Let's see what's in the manuscript, echoed Lindsey Graham, as they all hoped they could still somehow avoid calling the former national security advisor to testify. Some Republicans offered a Biden for Bolton witness trade, but got no takers. Republicans have the majority in the Senate. If they really wanted to subpoena Hunter Biden, they could. They have that authority. And the same is true for testimony from John Bolton. On Tuesday, Trump's attorneys took just a few hours to wrap up their defense of Donald Trump, but this time addressing the elephant in the room, Mr. Bolton. When he finally got to it, Trump personal attorney Jay Sekulow did not deny the claims of John Bolton, but declared that whatever Bolton has to offer is irrelevant. Sekulow called Bolton's book manuscript an unsourced allegation that's inadmissible in an impeachment trial. That same day, former White House Chief of Staff John Kelly, who, unlike Mick Mulvaney, was confirmed by Congress, John Kelly was saying he believes Bolton over Trump. More pressure for Republicans on the fence about Bolton. After the defense wrapped up its opening arguments at around 3.30 p.m., Republican senators huddled with their leader, Mitch McConnell, who informed them they did not have enough votes to stop witnesses. The senators were warned that by extending the trial with witnesses, they risk impatience and anger from their constituents. He told his caucus it needs to stand together in opposing witnesses. But as many as a dozen senators were either already committed to hearing from Bolton and others, or they decided to wait and see how stage two of the trial would go, the 16 hours over two days for senators from both parties to ask questions of both the House impeachment managers and the president's legal team. Stage two, we're in the midst of now. Most of all, they might want to be able to say to their constituents with a straight face that they voted in favor of a fair trial. Yet another poll dropped on Tuesday, this one from the conservative-leaning pollsters at Quinnipiac University. It showed that now 75% of independents want witnesses at this trial. The number of Republican voters wanting witnesses had shot up to 49%. Only one in five respondents said they were against new witnesses. And an even more recent poll puts Americans wanting witnesses at 82%. And here comes the judge. We also learned this week that Supreme Court Chief Justice John Roberts is allowed to subpoena impeachment witnesses on his own, and Senate Republicans would not be allowed to interfere if he did. He presides. He's the judge. He has the authority to issue rulings and subpoenas. Thanks to Georgetown Law Professor Neil Katyal and others writing in the Washington Post, we now know what that means. Under the rules of impeachment, Rule 5, it would take a two-thirds majority vote in the Senate to override the Chief Justice. In modern history, no Chief Justice has ever used these powers, but unlike other impeachments, no president has ever obstructed justice so completely. Chief Justice Roberts isn't the groundbreaking type, but 
circumstances may leave him no choice. He can and may be compelled to rise from the low profile he would have preferred. Under Impeachment Rule 24, any senator can ask the Chief Justice to issue subpoenas, but Democrats appear to be saving that option as a last resort. In case of fire, break glass. Or just do it. Under Mitch McConnell's customized impeachment rules, it would take just 51 votes to overturn the Chief Justice on a subpoena that's issued by senators. But that McConnell rule does not apply to subpoenas issued by the Chief Justice himself. McConnell's rules cannot and do not override the rules that have been in effect since 1886. Chief Justice could act within his rights to issue or allow subpoenas, if only he would. We learned this week there is no need for a Senate vote, no need for winning over four or more Republicans if Justice Roberts issues subpoenas. The more you know. The impeachment news continued to explode on Wednesday, yesterday, as the Senate entered the question-and-answer phase of the impeachment trial. There were more bombshells even before the day's session began. First, House Foreign Affairs Committee chairman revealed publicly for the first time that John Bolton told him on September 23rd that Elliot Engel's committee ought to look into the firing of Marie Ivanovich, indicating there had been wrongdoing in that firing. Nancy Pelosi announced the formal impeachment inquiry the next day, right after John Bolton blew the whistle. More pressure to call Bolton to testify. Then we heard the White House formally threaten John Bolton with the penalties for exposing classified information and order him not to publish his book, until those supposed security breaches could be removed from it. Bolton has written six books about foreign policy, none of which has exposed any classified information, and Bolton's lawyer says this one doesn't either. The White House claims some of the information in Bolton's book is not only classified, it's top secret. The White House says since Bolton would likely testify with that same information, his testimony should not be allowed either. And then, we learned yesterday, the Colorado Republican Senator Cory Gardner, one of the four senators who seemed most likely to vote for witnesses, had decided against them. And then there were three. And it became less likely there would be witnesses and less likely there would be a fair trial. A vote to allow or disallow witnesses is expected by the close of business on Friday, tomorrow. Over nearly a 10-hour day yesterday, senators submitted questions to the Chief Justice, written and sometimes printed on tan-colored cards. The two parties took turns asking questions, often of the representatives of their own sides, with the answers limited to five minutes. In one shocking argument, Trump lawyer Alan Dershowitz posited that a president can be acting both in his own personal interest and the best interest of the country simultaneously. That, said Dershowitz, does not qualify a president for impeachment. Dershowitz also argued that abuse of power is not an impeachable offense. I'll repeat that. Dershowitz also argued that abuse of power is not an impeachable offense. Adam Schiff later responded, we are lowering the bar to where everything's okay. Republicans led by Ted Cruz repeatedly called for information on the whistleblower who prompted the House impeachment inquiry, and there was an effort to link the whistleblower to Joe Biden. Trump lawyer Jay Sekulow said he'd want to call Adam Schiff, Hunter Biden, Joe Biden, the whistleblower, and others in exchange for testimony from John Bolton. Trump lawyer Pam Bondi tried to argue a case against Hunter Biden. Top-ranking Democratic senators responded by asking, in essence, if this opens the door for investigations of the president's adult children. 
Impeachment manager Val Demings replied that this trial is not about anyone's children. It's about the president's misconduct. We did learn through questioning that the president's lawyers did not learn the White House had a copy of John Bolton's manuscript until just this past Sunday, along with the rest of us, nearly a month after the book draft arrived at the White House for a security review. Democrats repeatedly called for a fair trial with evidence and at least one witness, John Bolton. Referring to Chief Justice Roberts, Adam Schiff said about the issuance of witness subpoenas, I trust the man behind me. As this show is published, we do not know if witnesses will happen. Today, the senators continue their question and answer period as they count down to a yay or nay vote on witnesses. But here's something else worth knowing. There is a way for Republican senators to vote their consciences and remove this president without directly angering Trump or the constituents back home. A secret ballot. A law professor emeritus from Pepperdine University writes in The Hill that the Constitution allows for a secret ballot when it's necessary for fair judgment, and it would take only 51 votes for the Senate to remove this president through a secret ballot. There's been speculation that as many as 35 Republican senators would vote for removal if they were able to cast secret ballots. In this age of anti-intellectualism, people's feelings get hurt. Here to examine these phenomena, Salon.com's Bob Seska. Bob? Thank you, Buzz. For a few minutes there, I was unsure whether to applaud that video of Rick Wilson, Don Lemon, and Wajahat Ali mocking Donald Trump and his fanboys on CNN. On one hand, I've heard from some very smart people who told me it was a mistake to poke the red hats like that, imitating a southern accent and generally insulting anyone who watches Fox News and loves the president. They say the CNN segment will only energize the red hats to turn out in the election while further dividing the nation. On the other hand, damn it, I'm also completely done with pandering to prideful nincompoops whose embrace of fiction and propaganda, their belligerent dumbness, is too often embraced as a virtue, especially in politics. Ironically, it was a team of never-Trumpers who originally devised the guy-you-want-to-have-a-beer-with standard for politicians, elevating an entire roster of know-nothing empty suits while framing them as one of the folks. It was operatives like the aforementioned Rick Wilson, along with Steve Schmidt, Nicole Wallace, Bill Kristol, and others who packaged goons like Dan Quayle, George W. Bush, and Sarah Palin as relatable characters, offering them up as leaders who were just like you. When voters are pandered to like this for decades on end using a very well-crafted political marketing strategy, it's no wonder they all began to gravitate to networks like Fox News and unapologetic morons like Donald Trump. To be clear, Rick Wilson helped to invent and empower the very demographic he was mocking on CNN the other day. After way too many years and all of the accompanying damage this folksy nonsense has manifested, especially in the form of the two most recent Republican presidents, pandering to American ignorance has careened way past its sell-by date and needs to be universally rejected as a thing, with a vengeance. Despite having been an early architect of this idiocracy crisis, Rick Wilson wasn't wrong for mocking them. People who fall behind the intelligence curve deserve our empathy, but when they wield their anti-intellectualism like a weapon, as if it's something to be proud of, something to be indulged and rewarded, as Trump's red hats believe, 
then it's entirely fair for us to let fly with the insults and satire. Naturally, however, the Trump people are once again playing the whiny victims, as if their ridiculous leader didn't set the table with his hubristic trolling. If you don't want to be ridiculed for being easily led automatons, Stop being easily led automatons. Stop believing a man who's lied 16,241 times since Inauguration Day, mainly to his own fanboys. Stop supporting a leader who believes he has absolute power. Stop rejecting the values that truly made America great. Trump is the quintessential ugly American. He represents everything we were taught as children to find loathsome and wrong. The list starts with his awkward and disgraceful mocking of Serge Kovaleski, his shaming of John McCain for getting caught, his copious and confessed sexual assaults, his empowering of Nazis and racists, especially after Charlottesville, his attempts to cheat in the election while praising overseas dictators, and thousands of other things. Any other chief executive would have been shamed out of the White House long ago, and how 45% of American voters still support this repulsive man-baby is both stupefying and dangerous. How else should we frame this kind of support other than the happy ignorance that accompanies brainwashing? When such a shockingly large demographic of Americans elevate incompetence over expertise, when they endorse childish nicknames over thoughtful discourse, when they champion winning by any means over facts and reason, when they blindly ingest Russian propaganda over hard news, when they're more willing to believe kooky conspiracy theories invented by a carnival geek than thoughtful, informed explanations, when they're incapable of distinguishing show folk from actual journalists, when they experiment with the president by electing a well-known criminal and reality show clown who's manipulating them into supporting a republic-ending dictatorship, how is anyone supposed to respect and embrace the misguidedness of it all? We can't, and we never should. Rather, we need to make America smart again. Or, at the very least, we need to reject prideful and gratuitous stupidity, especially in the sphere of policy and politics. The stakes are too harrowing to let ignoramuses commandeer the nation. And it all begins by making those who wear their idiocy like a badge of honor feel embarrassed by their mental laziness. And for heaven's sakes, no more pandering. I'm Bob Seska for Buzz Burbank News and Comment. Thank you, Bob. Get more of Mr. Seska at Salon.com, his Patreon page, and Tuesdays and Thursdays on The Bob Seska Show at BobSeska.com. He'll have a fresh show this afternoon. I join Bob on his Tuesday shows. One other big lie recently told by our president concerns the Iranian response to the killing of Iran's top general. That response had a dozen Iranian missiles landing on Iraqi military bases that housed American troops. In announcing Iran's retaliation, Trump said no Americans were harmed. We found out later there were American injuries, 11 of them, traumatic brain injuries, concussions. Last week, the Pentagon informed us there were actually 34 injured and that some had been shipped off to the Army Hospital in Germany for treatment. This week, the number was up to 50. The brain injury count had gone from 0 to 11 to 34 to 50. The Pentagon says it may again update that number. Trump characterized the injuries as headaches that he considers not very serious. Those are quotes. Now, the VFW, the oldest major veterans group in the country, is calling on Trump to apologize for minimizing those injuries. And we learn from the new book, A Very Stable Genius, how in his first year in office, Trump berated his top generals and diplomats, calling them to their faces dopes and babies. 
Trump says he would have been honored to serve in the military had it not been for his medical issue. One of Trump's doctors recorded that issue as bone spurs. HBO's Bill Maher isn't the only person who posed the question this week, what happens when Trump refuses to leave office? Whether he's ordered out of office, either by the Senate or by the voters this fall, Trump's made it clear he's not inclined to go. On the same day that a cantankerous intellectual comedian posed that question, so too had Richard Hasen writing in the Washington Post. Hasen is the Chancellor's Professor of Law and Political Science at the University of California at Irvine, and he joins Marr in pointing out the following. During his campaign in 2016, Trump had said he would not accept the results if he lost. When Trump saw he was losing, he called the election rigged. After he won the electoral vote but lost the popular vote by 3 million, he claimed, without evidence, that at least 3 million fraudulent votes had been cast for Hillary. He set up a commission to find that fraud. It failed. He had to disband the commission. His claim disproved. His former personal lawyer, Michael Cohen, in televised testimony under oath before Congress said, if he loses the election in 2020, there will never be a peaceful transition of power. At his rallies, Trump jokes about not leaving about staying beyond the term limits outlined in the Constitution. When he was asked the difference between him and President Nixon, he replied, I don't leave. I don't leave. And long before that, he had said, I have the support of the police, the military, the support of the bikers for Trump. I have the tough people, adding, but they don't play a tough until they go to a certain point, and then it would be very, very bad. Also worthy of discussion is the possibility that Trump might be reelected. Another new ABC News poll shows that 56% of Americans approve of Trump's handling of the economy and their fear of a bad economy has dropped 20 points from nearly two-thirds of the country to well under half. The economy has traditionally been a factor at the ballot box. Might some voters abandon principles for this good economy? As the economy continues to improve, Trump's popularity is up at least in the head-to-head presidential polls. Last fall, Trump ran behind each top Democrat by double digits. Now, he's just four points behind Joe Biden among registered voters. The gaps for the other Democratic hopefuls have shrunk as well. But Trump's overall approval rating remains underwater and refuses to budge. He now has the lowest approval rating of any president in the past 75 years of polling. He has never gotten to 50%. And no president has ever won re-election with only 44% approval. The UN's World Health Organization will consider again today whether to declare the Wuhan coronavirus outbreak a public health emergency. The WHO voted down that idea one week ago today, but is now re-evaluating as the disease spreads to other countries. The rate at which it's spreading is, to more than one epidemiologist, very concerning. We're seeing well over 1,000 new cases each day. There are nearly 8,000 cases in China now where more than 170 people have died. In addition to China and several Asian nations, there are now cases in the U.S., Canada, France, Germany, and the United Arab Emirates. The only deaths so far have been in China. But the official number of deaths has increased more than five-fold in the past seven days, and we know that's an incomplete count. There are now well over 8,000 cases worldwide, but only five confirmed here in the U.S. British Airways yesterday canceled all flights in and out of China. Other airlines, including those in the U.S., were still considering it. United and Air Canada say they've already scaled back their flights to and from China. 
Russia today sealed off its border with China. Scientists are racing to find a coronavirus vaccine. A lot less media attention, however, is being given to the 8,000 Americans who have died from the flu this year. So far, the flu is far more deadly than the coronavirus and at least as contagious, with more than 15 million cases reported so far. Some parts of the country still have not reached the peak of this flu season. 54 infants have died from the flu so far this year. A new doctor survey shows millennials are the age group least likely to get a flu shot. One-third of them don't intend to get one. 25% say they just don't have time. The survey found millennials more likely to believe the misinformation about vaccines as well. Among America's gun owners, how many are responsible? A new survey shows that two out of five people who have a gun at home don't lock it up. That includes households with children. A recent study in the Journal of Preventive Medicine found that locking up a gun at home reduces the risk of accidental and self-inflicted gun injuries among young people. Trump's very strong border wall fell over after high winds yesterday along California's border with Mexico. The wind blew it down. A newly constructed section of border wall collapsed onto some trees on the Mexican side. The U.S. Border Patrol says the wall's new concrete foundation hadn't set yet and was toppled by winds of up to 37 miles an hour. In an apparent attempt to boost his popularity, his re-election chances, and to distract from his impeachment, Trump this week unveiled the Middle East peace plan son-in-law Jared Kushner has been crafting for the past three years. The news came in a joint announcement from the impeached U.S. president and the criminally indicted prime minister of Israel, Benjamin Netanyahu. No Palestinians were present. The plan is not expected to bring peace to the Mideast since it so heavily favors Israel with very little for the Palestinians. The Palestinians have already rejected it, and Netanyahu's government will vote Sunday to annex 30% of the West Bank. The Trump administration is calling it a two-state solution that's realistic. Netanyahu praised Trump for being, quote, the best friend Israel ever had in the White House. We are likely to see that clip of Bibi in the campaign ads for Trump, and the violence in the Middle East is expected to continue. Those who come here from other countries come here to pursue the American dream. A new Trump policy announced last summer would require people seeking green cards and visas to prove they have already achieved the American dream before they get here with cash and a health insurance policy. The idea is to weed out foreign freeloaders and anyone who has nothing from coming here to pursue the American dream in case they might end up needing food stamps or some other kind of public assistance. Give us your tired and poor? No, give us people with cash and insurance. Immigrants would have to prove they are already self-sufficient when they arrive in the U.S. The policy, of course, challenged in court, but this week the United States Supreme Court upheld Trump's new policy in a 5-4 to four vote. Trump's acting immigration director, Ken Cuccinelli, says, quote, We want to see people coming to this country who are self-sufficient. That's a core principle of the American dream, end quote. But as we have already covered, people come to America to pursue the American dream. Tick-tock on the doomsday clock, medical oddities, and cookies in space in the final segment up next. If you'd like to contribute to this independent journalism effort, please click on the PayPal Donate button on the upper right at buzzburbank.com or on your phone just below the title Buzz Burbank News and Comment. Some kind listeners schedule a monthly payment. 
A lot of great books out right now, and there's still a little Amazon button on my page. If you're shopping Amazon anyway, clicking through my website and bookmarking that Amazon page still helps. You may need to turn off your pop-up or ad blockers to see all the useful links on my page, but it is both safe and helpful to do so. Whatever you do, however you do it, thank you. It's time for the annual reading of the Doomsday Clock, a measurement by scientists and others of just how close we are to the destruction of the planet by nuclear war, climate change, and other factors. Midnight on the clock represents the end of the world. The scientists this year moved the hand closer to midnight than it has ever been in its 73-year history. Based on the events of 2019, they moved it 20 seconds closer this year. It is now 100 seconds to midnight. In 1999, we were 17 minutes away. If you've done much baking, you know it takes longer to bake at a higher altitude in the mountains of Colorado, for instance. So what are the baking times in an orbit around the Earth at the edge of space? Well, the results are in from the big chocolate chip cookie experiment on board the International Space Station. Using a zero-G oven, American astronauts found it took two hours and ten minutes to bake a single cookie at 325 degrees. If we are going to Mars, we're going to need more than dehydrated prepackaged food. The first food to be baked in space from raw ingredients, cookies. Cookies in space. Nobody gets more irritated by traffic jams than mathematicians. They say traffic jams don't have to happen and that if traffic engineers would just listen, there's a solution. Putting everyone on the same navigation system along with wider roads and special lanes for electric cars. Forget New York. If you can make it in Oklahoma City, you can make it anywhere. Oklahoma City leads a top 10 list of the least healthy cities in America. A wellness technology company bases these rankings on the level of stress among the people in these cities, factoring both money and health. Oklahoma City, the worst, followed by, in order, Mesa, Arizona, Philadelphia, San Antonio, Indianapolis, San Jose, Jacksonville, Florida, Memphis, and Phoenix. The Centers for Disease Control reports that fewer Americans are binge drinking, but that those who do are drinking more, a lot more. On average, the number of binge drinkers nationwide is down by nearly a full percentage point over the past five years. But nine states did report increases in binge drinking. Idaho saw a huge increase, but it was also up in Indiana, Maine, Montana, New Jersey, New York, North Dakota, Ohio, and Virginia. Binge drinking is defined as five or more drinks in one sitting for men, four or more in a sitting for women. The CDC reports that liquor taxes do not begin to cover the state's loss in productivity. Super Bowl ticket prices are up this year by 32%. The average price for a Super Bowl ticket this year is nearly $9,000. The last time, the Kansas City Chiefs made the Super Bowl 50 years ago. The tickets were 15 bucks. Football for the rich. The shock of the death of Kobe Bryant this week, along with others, including his 13-year-old daughter, spread beyond the world of basketball. The investigation continues into the cause of that Southern California helicopter crash. We also lost former PBS news anchor Jim Lehrer. He teamed with Robert McNeil for 20 of his 36 years as PBS offered an alternative to the network evening news shows, offering more news and more depth. Lehrer loved to write, starting out in the newspaper biz, but he also wrote over 20 novels, four plays, and three memoirs. 
He once said, news is information that's required in a democratic society. Jim Lehrer was 85. Passings and passages. Canadian-born Neil Young this week became a United States citizen. It only took him 54 years, and it almost didn't happen. He had to go through extra screening after honestly admitting he smokes marijuana in his first interview. The former, sometimes member of Crosby, Stills, and Nash is now a naturalized citizen after coming here illegally more than a half century ago. He celebrated his citizenship by singing God Bless America on Instagram with his wife, actress Daryl Hannah. Billie Eilish became the first 18-year-old in history to sweep the Grammys with Song and Record of the Year, Bad Guy, and Best New Artist. She's also the first artist to sweep the Grammy since Christopher Cross in 1981. Where is he now? Veteran country singer Tanya Tucker won a Grammy for the first time in her career. Bad Boys for Life is the top movie this week at $34 million in its second week out. To see what else is playing, including the Oscar nominees, please visit Fandango through the link at buzzburbank.com. A guest on Antiques Roadshow collapsed this week. Upon learning the value of a Rolex watch he bought for $346 in 1974. It's like the one Paul Newman wore back in the day. The TV appraiser told David from North Dakota, those watches have been going for $200,000. David began to weaken. Then David learned that because he had the model with the word oyster on the face, it could be worth $400,000. And that's when David collapsed on camera. When he got up again, he was told that because the watch is in pristine condition, it could be worth $700,000. Medical oddities. A high school girl in Ontario was trying to make her younger cousin laugh, so she put a whole harmonica inside her mouth sideways. When she panicked at not being able to get it out, her gasping was musical. The emergency room referred her to her dentist, who used a device to open her mouth wider so the harmonica could be removed. Her dentist told her, Let's not do this again, okay, dear? A Vesper is a shiny stainless steel vibrator that's small enough to be worn on its gold chain necklace and is inscribed with the words, don't forget to play. An Arizona woman bought a Vesper, wore it to dinner with her boyfriend, and one thing did lead to another. Arizona's Channel 4 TV reports the woman couldn't find the toy at one point later that evening and then felt a sharp pain in her abdomen, complete with vibrating. It took surgeons to remove the toy from her bladder. Blue Leg Syndrome. A San Francisco man who may rely too much on the Internet reported on Twitter this week that he had gone to WebMD to find out why his legs had turned blue. He turned away from the screen, convinced that he had deep vein thrombosis. He went straight to the ER. It was there that he and the doctors figured out his legs were blue because of a new pair of jeans. The wine flowed like a river, in a river. California's Russian River was flooded with a Cabernet Sauvignon this week when a tank ruptured at a winery in Sonoma County. There are environmental concerns since the spill could have been as much as 20,000 gallons. Although the wine may kill some of the insects that feed the fish, no fish have died from the red wine spill. However, everybody knows White wine goes with fish. A New Hampshire couple is bracing for the next flood. 
public radio there reports the couple lives next to a public attraction called Ice Castles that each winter presents a spectacular display of lighted, towering ice sculptures. And each spring, the couple says the ice melts and floods their basement. Last April, it was 15,000 gallons of water in their basement doing $100,000 damage. Now they're worried about what will happen this spring, so the Trinkles filed a lawsuit, Trinkle v. Ice Castles. 20-year-old Spencer Boston was in the courthouse in Wilson County, Tennessee this week for a sentencing hearing. As he stood at the lectern explaining to the judge why marijuana should be legal, he pulled a joint out of his pocket and blazed up. Odor in the court. The familiar aroma wafted through the courtroom and the courtroom burst into laughter. And young Spencer Boston reportedly generated quite a lot of smoke in that courtroom before deputies could escort him out the door and back to jail. A deputy in Wisconsin picked up some interesting publicity this week after pulling over the Oscar Meyer Wiener Mobile. The sheriff's officer says the Wiener operator broke the law by driving too close to a car pulled off the side of the road with its emergency flashers on. Wisconsin law requires motorists to move to the left lane when they see a car pulled off on the right with flashers. But the cop let the Wiener driver off with just a warning, even though he believes the driver was also speeding. See also hot-dogging. In Georgetown, South Carolina, a sheriff's deputy there was answering a possible burglary call when his investigation went sideways. The officer's canine on arrival went straight for the cow on the property and bit the cow on the leg. The cow got spooked and got into it with the dog. The deputy then used his stun gun to bring down the cow that belongs to the people who called about the possible burglary. No humans or animals were seriously injured in the incident. And by the way, there was no evidence of an attempted burglary. So we think that went well. From the Home Office Orlando Bureau, 21-year-old Antoine McDonald has been arrested again, this time for running a stop sign with a motorcycle, driving it across someone's yard, and smashing it into a carport, causing the carport to collapse onto the motorcycle, according to the Florida Highway Patrol. Antoine denied the charges, telling deputies, I wasn't in any crash. I'm the Orlando Easter Bunny. Google it. Antoine McDonald is indeed the young man arrested last year in Orlando for a street fight while wearing his Easter Bunny costume. When they arrested him this time, they had him remove the costume first and then charged him with leaving the scene of a crash involving property damage, driving with a suspended license, and operating a motorcycle without a license. And finally, an Orange County, Florida man pulled into a 7-Eleven late Monday morning to fill up his 18-foot boat before an afternoon of fishing with his buddies. The man was apparently so excited about the outing, he inserted the gas pump nozzle not into the fuel tank, but into a hole meant for a fishing pole. A county fire and rescue hazmat crew was able to siphon out most of the gas. The excited boat owner had pumped 30 gallons of gas directly into the cockpit. Buzz Burbank. Thanks for listening and your support to the donate button at buzzburbank.com. I'll be back next Thursday with another Buzz Burbank news and comments. The preceding presentation was brought to you by the Realm Network.